Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Metal Gear Solid, a third-person action-adventure stealth game developed and published by Konami for the Sony PlayStation back in 1998. We are going to look at that title in just a minute, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 49. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the podcast community. And we have a ton of fun out there. This past weekend was actually our second a consecutive weekend gaming challenge. This weekend's theme was all about Mario. There were three different Mario-related themes, and basically we just opened it up, and anybody who wanted to could play along and try to get on the leaderboard. We had quite a few people play this weekend. We had five different people uh, newly appear on the leaderboard. They were Rich Setterwald with two points, I Am the Dizzle with two points, Blue Fates with one point, and ISO with one point. Staying in the lead for the second week in a row is Bookie Ganu, who also added two points to his total. He now has three points. He remains at the top of the leaderboard. You might ask, what is the leaderboard for? Well, you're going to have to play to find out. And if you want to play, join us out on Discord. It is a lot of fun. Our first season, so to speak, will last through the beginning of October. That's the season for the Weekend Gaming Challenge. There will be prizes associated with that. So if you're interested, if you want to jump in and get involved with the community, I highly recommend you join the Discord. I should also mention that we also have a Patreon. That is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want to get even more classic gaming today, feel free to go out there and join one of the support tiers. You do get exclusive Patreon podcasts. You get Patreon posts out there. Now, granted, the Patreon is relatively new. We have our third Patreon exclusive podcast releasing this upcoming Wednesday. But I am dedicated to this for the long haul. So whenever you feel inclined or if you feel inclined, we'll be there when you're ready. If not, this show will remain weekly and hopefully you're all enjoying it as it exists. But if you do want a little bit of more classic gaming today, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I do also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon of Classic Gaming Patreon members. These are the individuals that are supporting us at the Pantheon level. They are Rich Senewald, David Morton, and Iso. Thank you for your support. Thank you all for your support, and thank you for listening. I hope you all have as much fun with this as I do. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. Where does it sit within the overall spectrum of video and computer gaming? And then we go into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or do any sort of quantitative analysis, but we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? the narrative and or story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. 
And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should play it today. It hasn't even aged a bit. It is as good today as it ever was. Just beyond our Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend that you play them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or the genre in which the game lives, you are almost guaranteed to have a good time. I cannot say that these are quite at that Pantheon level, though. These are just a little bit below the Pantheon, but they are still amazing worthwhile experiences, and I still highly recommend you give them a go today. Beyond the Golden Oldies are our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. Uh, They may have aged a little bit, may have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, give it a go. You might still have some fun. But for the broader population, I cannot recommend these titles. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Metal Gear Solid. Metal Gear Solid is a third-person action-adventure stealth game developed and published by Konami for the Sony PlayStation back in 1998. Before we can talk about Metal Gear Solid, we've got to take a look at the creation of the Metal Gear series as well as the game's creator, Hideo Kojima. And along the way, we'll touch a bit on the evolution of stealth-based gameplay because Kojima's work effectively served as the framework for the entire stealth genre. Now, we've talked about Kojima and some of his early development efforts before during our episode on Snatcher. For listeners who have been around for a while, part of this discussion is going to feel like a bit of a refresher, albeit fleshed out with some additional details around the early development behind the Metal Gear series. I do think that it's always important to frame the full context around any of the games we discuss, regardless of if we may have covered similar ground before, so that each episode can kind of stand on its own as its own self-contained thing. So, let's talk about Hideo Kojima. Unlike a good portion of the game developers and designers we talk about in the various episodes of this podcast, I would venture a guess and say that Hideo Kojima is probably well-known across a wide spectrum of the gaming population. I mean, you have the Metal Gear series, which we'll obviously talk about today, but you also have a bunch of other recent modern efforts, such as the unfortunately failed Silent Hills collaboration with Guillermo del Toro, P.T., and Death Stranding and its forthcoming sequel, along with the upcoming movie, in the same universe. 
Kojima has made quite a name for himself over the years as a well-respected, influential game designer. And generally speaking, Kojima's games all have a certain DNA to them, and gamers around the world love his work. Back in 1986, though, Kojima was merely the newest member of Konami's MSX home computer division. Kojima's path to the video game industry is a bit of an interesting story. As a child, Kojima had been exposed to a number of television shows and movies, partially as a result of a family tradition, whereby every single night, he and his family would watch a different movie in its entirety. Any and all films were fair game, and Kojima and his parents experienced a wide variety of genres across their movie nights. These early experiences would greatly influence Kojima and instill in him a love of cinema. That interest would further be solidified after one of his classmates brought a Super 8 camcorder to school, and it was around that time when Kojima decided that he wanted to begin making films himself. So, that's exactly what he did. Now, mind you, this is a pre-teenage Kojima, and I don't believe any available footage exists from these early efforts. But, even in his childhood years, Kojima was enamored with the prospect of creating movies, and he'd even charge other children 50 yen to see his amateur productions. While this overall interest would come to define Kojima's work throughout his career, he went to college for a much more traditional education, majoring in economics. Though even with his educational focus elsewhere, he still continued to develop his creative side, often creating fictional short stories whenever he had the time, and sometimes even weaving those stories into his coursework. His hope was that if he could write an award-winning story, then he might be approached by a major film studio to direct an actual movie. To the best of my knowledge, though, this never happened back in the 80s, despite Kojima's strong desire to become a filmmaker. What did end up happening, though, was Kojima deciding to pivot into the video game industry, joining Konami's MSX home computer division after his graduation in 1986. So let's talk about the MSX computer system, and also the general state of Japanese computers and consoles back in the early to mid-80s. Back then, and this goes beyond Japan, by the way, this is just the way computers were back then, there was a total lack of standards. This was pervasive across the entire computer industry. You did not have a standard computer set of hardware that every piece of software would run on. You had Tandys, you had Apples, you had various flavors of IBM, you had MSX in Japan. There were just so many different platforms of computers out there, and all of them, or at least most of them, utilized proprietary hardware and software. There were no real unifying elements, which meant if a developer was going to develop a game or a piece of software, he had to develop that software for pretty much every single platform independently. There was no real portability between machines. Nowadays, we still have that a little bit between the Macintosh operating system and the Windows-based operating systems, and then, of course, Linux as well. So it's not like that has completely gone away. But from a hardware perspective, most machines run on the same exact hardware, or at least the same hardware platforms. At least that's the way it is today. Back then, even hardware was different. It wasn't just an operating system level thing. Hardware itself was different between various computer platforms. The MSX in particular 
was a collaboration between Microsoft and the ASCII Corporation, which was originally a Japanese-based company that was a magazine publisher who quickly moved into the computer field, primarily as a Japanese licensee and distributor of Microsoft's products in Japan. The MSX computer was an attempt at creating a unified computer platform with wide compatibility across Japan's computer ecosystem, similar to what IBM would eventually do in the United States with their push for IBM-compatible PCs. The thought here was, if a piece of hardware or software was listed as having MSX compatibility, then it would be usable on any MSX-compatible system, regardless of who manufactured it. This was a pretty progressive marketing push, and it would prove to be popular with consumers. The MSX platform itself became hugely successful in Japan, with over 7 million units sold after its launch in 1983. The MSX would also prove to be popular with game developers, who quickly turned their attention to developing new and varied game experiences for the computer platform. Now, this was before Nintendo rose to prominence in the Japanese gaming market. So for a period of time after its launch, the MSX was the platform for game development in Japan. And coincidentally, that would be the platform that Hideo Kojima got his start in the gaming industry several years later. By 1986, Nintendo had captured the imaginations of game developers and consumers. So Kojima was actually pretty disappointed that his first experience in developing games was focused on the MSX platform. He had believed that the MSX was inferior to Nintendo's 8-bit system, which was the Famicom as it was known in Japan. Just to provide a couple of additional details, the MSX could only display 16 colors at a time, which was pretty inadequate when compared to the NES. Regardless of his internal feelings, though, Kojima remained focused on his job, with his first assignment being a role as the assistant designer for a game called Penguin Adventure, which was a behind-the-character perspective action-adventure platformer that was pretty ahead of its time. It actually offered a pseudo-3D experience, where you would have to traverse numerous and varied environments. You would have to dodge obstacles and defeat enemies, all en route to your eventual goal, which was to retrieve a golden apple to cure the princess of the Penguin Kingdom. And the ending of the game actually changed depending on your actions throughout your playthrough. Following the release of Penguin Adventure, and the recognition that Kojima was a talented designer, he was asked to take over the creation of a new game from a more senior designer at Konami, which was being designed as a fast-paced military combat action title that was being developed for the MSX2 computer system, which was the successor to the original MSX. That military action experience is what formed the original foundations of what would become the very first Metal Gear game. When Kojima took over the project, though, he noticed some issues, the most significant of which was the fact that the MSX2 system just wasn't powerful enough to maintain the degree of speed and combat intensity that the game was intended to convey. Things like the number of enemies and projectiles on screen at one time had to be reduced in order to maintain the playability of the game, and common console features like smooth scrolling just weren't fully possible with the MSX2. Kojima believed these limitations were detracting from the overall experience, so he decided to switch things up, de-emphasizing the fast-paced combat action and instead focusing on a more stealth-based gameplay loop where your goal was to secretly infiltrate an enemy base, all while avoiding detection by guards. Now, it is hard to imagine a time when stealth elements in games didn't exist, but the fact is, 
back in 1987, there were no real stealth-focused games on the market. Sure, you had some games that utilized some elementary stealth mechanics, like the original Castle Wolfenstein by Silas Werner, where you could avoid enemies by navigating around a level more carefully, or even by disguising yourself as a guard. But it wasn't like there were deep, complex systems at play governing enemy behavior. For the original Metal Gear, Kojima developed a number of different mechanics that would serve as the foundation for nearly all stealth-driven titles to follow, including the use of sound as a core mechanic, where enemies could actually hear an unsilenced gunshot and become alerted. In Metal Gear, enemies were also programmed to only attack if they saw or heard you, meaning, if you weren't in their line of sight, you could technically sneak behind them undetected. Several other mechanics were also included in the game, such as security cameras and sensors that you had to avoid, screen-wide alarms that would go off if you were detected, and the ability to either disguise yourself as a guard, or perhaps most famously, hide under a cardboard box, which by the way would become a somewhat humorous staple of the entire Metal Gear series. This kind of gameplay was simply not seen in a truly mainstream title before. And in fact, Metal Gear is one of, if not the first game actually marketed as a stealth title. And Kojima took great efforts to ensure players knew what they were getting when they picked up the game. He even went so far as to make players begin the game with no weapons at all, which was a design decision that effectively forced players to work to avoid detection rather than running through levels guns blazing. While you could acquire weapons over the course of playing the game, each of those weapons had a very limited quantity of ammunition, so even though you could try to play the game as more of an action title, it really wasn't an effective means of playing the game. If you were going to be successful, you were going to have to learn to be sneaky. Before we go on, I think it's important to talk about the situation involving the port of the original Metal Gear to the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES. For anyone who has been keeping up with fairly modern gaming news, and by that I mean news from the last 10-ish years or so, you'll recognize that Kojima and Konami no longer work with each other, with Kojima leaving the company around the time that Metal Gear Solid 5 was sweeping a ton of game awards. Things had become so contentious between the company and Kojima that he was barred from attending any of the award shows around that time, with other individuals accepting awards on his behalf. I don't know the whole story that led to Kojima's departure and falling out with Konami, but from the outside looking in, it certainly appeared to be contentious. I mention this because, even as far back as the original NES release of Metal Gear, there were some tense undercurrents between Kojima and Konami that made it feel, at least to me, that Kojima and Konami and that split may have been brewing for years. Now, we've talked about ports previously. We actually talked about ports a lot across the various episodes of this podcast. And a port is effectively where a game is created for a single platform, but then subsequently moved to another platform in order to broaden market reach and increase its player base. And, of course, also to make money. Many times, those ports are somewhat different than their baseline release, either because the new platform the game is being ported to has some limitations in comparison to the original platform, or, in some instances, the new platform might actually have some new features that developers can take advantage of. As an example, during the CD-ROM boom of the early 90s, 
many games were ported from cartridges and floppy disks to CD-ROMs in order to take advantage of the increased storage that CDs provided. So things like filmed sequences, better audio, and voice acting were added to serve to enhance that original experience. Looking in the opposite direction, many arcade titles from the 80s were technologically superior to games appearing on home consoles, using a wider variety of colors and better audio capabilities than what most cartridge-based games could deliver. So, when an arcade game was ported to a home console, that often included reducing the graphics or streamlining the audio to fit within the constraints of whatever home platform the game was getting ported to. Other times, though, a port is more of a reworking, with many elements changed not because of limitations or enhancements, but because someone simply wants to do something different. And this is exactly what happened with the port of Metal Gear from the MSX2 to the NES. Apparently, Konami provided a different development team with the source code from the original Metal Gear and were then told to port the title to the NES by making it as different as possible from the original game. And by the way, this was all done without Kojima's knowledge, which to me is just crazy. Now, I know when you work with a company, they oftentimes own the intellectual property of whatever you create while you're employed with that company. But still, in this instance... It certainly feels shady the way Konami handled the situation, and it's pretty clear Kojima wasn't happy about it either, since he would eventually publicly disown the NES version of the title, claiming that it is not a valid entry in the core Metal Gear series. Anyway, the NES port of Metal Gear would be decidedly different than Kojima's version of the title, but it would be met with a fair degree of critical acclaim nonetheless, as was Kojima's original release. With the release of Metal Gear a brand new game series would be born, and with it, Kojima's career really began to take off. With Metal Gear an undeniable success, Kojima was free to work on his next title for Konami. Drawing upon his love of movies, including semi-recent science fiction releases like Blade Runner and The Terminator, Kojima decided to create a cinematic cyberpunk adventure that would allow players to experience a Hollywood-esque story with strong characters, intriguing plot twists, and fully developed locations across a futuristic science fiction game world. That concept would eventually evolve into Kojima's second title, Snatcher, which was a visual novel adventure game experience that, by the way, we talked about in depth during a prior podcast episode. We're not going to rehash all of that history here, so for anyone who may be interested, I would encourage you to check out that discussion. What I do want to mention, though, is that Snatcher served as a general evolution of Kojima's style, and with the genre switch to a more story-driven kind of game than his prior title, the opportunity was there for Kojima to deliver a more cinematic experience, and that is exactly what he did. Recall that Kojima had always had an interest in film, and one of his dreams was to become a filmmaker. Snatcher gave him the opportunity to experiment in cinematic techniques while still serving in his current role as a game director at Konami, and every chance he had, he was continuously injecting more and more film influences into the title, both from the perspective of story inspiration, as well as the way the story and overall narrative was revealed to the player. Snatcher would further prove Kojima as a talented game designer, though despite the talent on display and the cinematic quality of the story, the game wouldn't really sell all that well. Even with multiple ports and various versions, the game would fail to gain any sort of commercial traction, 
though in later years it would come back into prominence as a cult classic among gamers around the world, so much so that its popularity and reverence now is much greater than when it was originally released. After the release of Snatcher, Kojima began to consider what game to create next, though interestingly, his next title would come about as a result of a random conversation between him and a colleague. During that conversation, Kojima learned that a new title in the Metal Gear series, Stakes Revenge, was being developed by Konami for the NES. Konami had been impressed by sales of the original Metal Gear on the NES, despite the fact that Kojima hadn't been involved, and they decided to go off and make a direct sequel to that title, once again without Kojima's involvement, or in this case, knowledge. Kojima wasn't particularly happy when he found out that Konami was, once again, doing their own thing with something he originally created. So, he decided that his next title would be a sequel to his version of the original Metal Gear. The NES would get its version of the game without Kojima's involvement, which was called Snake's Revenge, while the MSX2 in Japan would get Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake. As Kojima sat down to work on Metal Gear 2, he knew he wanted to continue to innovate and include additional gameplay elements in the title, so he enhanced the original game's stealth mechanics to include the concept of using noise to attract and distract guards intentionally, as opposed to simply making noise and having guards become alerted to your presence. Similar refinements included the creation of a 45-degree view cone for enemies, representing the visual field of view that they could potentially spot the player, as well as the addition of three-dimensional height as a core mechanic of the game, allowing players to hide under objects or crawl inside events in order to avoid detection. Metal Gear 2 would release in 1990, which was the same year as the NES game Snake's Revenge released, which sounds like it'd be confusing, but interestingly... Each title was effectively region-specific, as the MSX2 version of the game was only released in Japan, and the NES version of the game was only released outside of Japan. It was definitely a strange situation, and a weird working relationship between Kojima and Konami, but it kind of is what it is. That's exactly the way things were going back then. Anyway, Kojima's version of the title would release to rave reviews, while Konami's Snake's Revenge would release to, well not quite as favorable reviews. It wasn't universally panned, but in comparison to the MSX2 canon entry in the Metal Gear series, it just wasn't of the same caliber. Now, interestingly, Kojima himself provided some mixed messaging over the last 20 years as it relates to Snake's Revenge. In one interview that I read, he claimed that the game captured the spirit of the Metal Gear universe. In another discussion, though, at the 2009 Game Developers Conference, He's been quoted as calling it somewhat of a crappy game, and that's in quotes. He literally said, somewhat of a crappy game. And then even later, he retracted that statement, saying it wasn't in fact a bad game. I honestly don't know what to believe here, but I'm going to make an educated guess and say that Kojima's true feelings are probably somewhere in the middle, with corporate responsibilities of the time causing him to alter his messaging a bit. That is purely... A wild guess on my part, knowing the way history has played out. So take that conjecture with a grain of salt. After the release of Metal Gear 2, Kojima would begin working on his next title, another adventure game in a similar style to Snatcher. This game, entitled Police Knots, will most likely be the topic of a future podcast episode, so I'm not going to go into too much depth on this one just at the moment. 
But what I do want to mention is how the development of the title and its subsequent ports would eventually impact the evolution of the Metal Gear series. When Kojima was developing Police Knots, his focus remained on the Japanese computer market. While his titles may have been ported to various consoles, his default development environment was still computers, and Police Knots itself was developed for the PC-9821 platform, which was similar to the MSX in that it was a Japanese-based computer that, at least as far as I'm aware, never made its way to any other countries. While Police Knots was in development, there were various discussions of which systems the title would be ported to, and one system the team had considered was Sony's PlayStation system, which hadn't been released yet, but it was a CD-ROM console that was just about to come to market. While Police Knots wouldn't be a native PlayStation creation, Kojima was highly impressed with the console, so much so that he decided that he would eventually work on a Metal Gear game for that system. He didn't know when that would happen, but he knew that he wanted to create a PlayStation game. Kojima's Police Knots would release to strong critical praise, and while it would never be officially released outside of Japan, there are various fan translations for different versions of the title that were created over the years to allow non-Japanese-speaking gamers to experience the title. Anyway, with the release of Police Knots, Kojima turned his attention to his next project, which he fully intended to create for the 3DO platform. We've talked about it on prior episodes, but just as a refresher, the 3DO was more of a technology platform as opposed to a single manufacturer's console, meaning that multiple manufacturers like Panasonic and Goldstar could create 3DO consoles, and all of them could play games designed for the platform. There was, by the way, some strong hype around the console, and it had the backing of some pretty heavy hitters in the game industry, primarily Electronic Arts founder Trip Hawkins, who was also the driving force behind the entire 3DO platform. So it's really not hard to imagine why Kojima wanted to create his newest Metal Gear game for the console. But the fact is, the 3DO would never really catch on as a must-have console in the video game market, especially with Sega and Nintendo still being dominant forces and Sony's PlayStation releasing in Japan in late 1994. So Kojima decided early on that he would fulfill the vow he had made while creating Police Knots. Rather than release his new Metal Gear title on a Japanese computer system or the ailing 3DO platform, Kojima's new Metal Gear game would become a Sony PlayStation exclusive. And with that, work on the game that would become Metal Gear Solid truly began. Now you might be wondering why Kojima titled the game Metal Gear Solid rather than Metal Gear 3 or something similar, and honestly, I've actually kind of wondered that myself over the years. According to Kojima, the reason for dropping the sequel numbering from the game was because his Metal Gear games, those being the ones created for the MSX2 computer system in Japan, didn't really have any sort of distribution outside of that country. So he thought that not many people had awareness of the prior titles, and if he started with Metal Gear 3, it'd be confusing for a large portion of the player base. Beyond that, he also wanted to draw a distinction between the NES Metal Gear games and his new game, because, like we were talking about, Kojima hadn't been involved in their creation at all, and as a result, he didn't really recognize any of the NES Metal Gear games as valid entries in the Metal Gear series. Metal Gear Solid was intended to be a sort of fresh start for the series, and a good starting point for everyone, regardless of whether they had awareness of the prior games or not. As far as providing that starting point, 
the team was intrigued with how they could harness Sony's new platform to deliver a compelling experience for players. In comparison to the prior consoles and platforms that Kojima and the team had worked on, the Sony PlayStation provided a significant leap in power, both from a pure processing perspective and also from a graphical and audio standpoint. Beyond the pure power of the console, the PlayStation was also a CD-based system, and by the mid-90s, CD-ROM technology was becoming more and more pervasive, with nearly every console manufacturer jumping on the bandwagon, or in the case of Nintendo, completely faking that bandwagon out before jumping into a cartridge-controlled buggy. With all that power available, though, Kojima outlined a few directives to the team. He wanted his new game to feature the highest quality graphics possible for the time, inclusive of three-dimensional perspectives. He also wanted the game to be as cinematic as possible, with the entire experience presented in such a way that the game would approach cinema-level quality. And thirdly, he wanted the game to be as realistic as possible while still remaining a fun experience. With those directives in mind, the team got to work on building the game. So let's turn our attention to the first item on Kojima's list— that being the graphics utilized in the title. The Sony PlayStation, as one of the newer consoles on the market, had some pretty powerful hardware for graphics processing, especially in comparison to the prior generation of 16-bit consoles and computer platforms. Kojima decided early on that he wanted the game to be as immersive as possible, and he thought one of the ways he could capture gamers' attention was to present the game entirely in a first-person perspective. The only issue was that 3D titles, and three-dimensional first-person shooters in particular, were still trying to find their footing around the mid-90s, and while there was a rapidly expanding list of games that had made the leap into three dimensions, there was still a ton of experimentation happening. Nowadays, there are some pretty standard ways developers use to create three-dimensional environments, and similarly, most games have fairly standard controls that players can utilize in navigating a first-person perspective three-dimensional space. Back when Metal Gear Solid was being created, none of that really existed. In fact, the original PlayStation DualShock controller, which was the one with the dual analog sticks, that wasn't even a thing yet when Metal Gear Solid began development. And beyond consoles, the concept of mouse-look in computer-based first-person shooters was just beginning to be used around this time. What all of that meant was that for Metal Gear, if the game was going to be a first-person perspective, players would have to navigate it using a standard directional pad and no additional controls for looking around that world. Think about that. Today, in many console first-person perspective games, you walk around using your left analog stick and look around using your right analog stick. If all you had was a directional pad and four face buttons on your controller, how would you really translate that into a true 3D kind of experience? Kojima foresaw this as an issue, and he didn't really know how to translate the control schemes of the time to support navigating around a first-person 3D environment. So, he and the team did the next best thing. They would create the game with fully three-dimensional graphics, meaning the world was rendered in three dimensions but the player perspective would no longer be first-person. It'd shift to a third-person perspective with more of an angled, tops-down kind of view, which actually had the interesting effect of turning the gameplay into something more akin to a two-dimensional action game by minimizing the use of the height axis. In other words, as you would navigate the game, you could move side to side, and you could move into and out of the screen along the depth axis, but other than a few sections of the game with stairs there really wasn't much in the way of height-driven navigation. 
Although, even with that, Kojima wanted to ensure that players still knew that they were inhabiting a fully three-dimensional world, while also still recognizing that the control limitations of the time prevented that from being a pervasive experience. So, the team added the ability for players to transition to a first-person perspective anytime they wanted, although that first-person perspective was really only usable to look around the environment. Players couldn't move or take any other actions while they were in first-person mode, but regardless, it still served its purpose in convincing players that they were navigating a three-dimensional space, even though the game's primary perspective and controls kind of felt a bit more two-dimensional in practice. Creating the game world, though, would also prove challenging, as game engines around this time didn't have nearly the features that they have today, and trying to make three-dimensional environments on those tools was both cumbersome and difficult. Even beyond the creation of the game world, Camera control in three-dimensional games was often a major issue, and I am sure that everyone out there has played at least a couple games where the camera was a source of frustration. Even today, some games simply do not have an effective camera system in place. I'm going to ask you a question. How many times has someone turned the corner in a third-person game only to have the camera zoom into a nearby wall as opposed to smoothly following behind your character? I know that I've had that experience plenty of times, and that's even on more recent titles. Back when 3D gaming was still being figured out, cameras were that much worse. For Kojima, though, the challenge was even more difficult because he wanted to create a truly cinematic experience, which meant that the camera system in Metal Gear Solid had to both ensure the player had a good view of the playing field, while also maintaining angles and movements that mimicked the very non-interactive experience of watching a film. In order to model out these camera shots and angles, Kojima turned to a very analog process, which was, interestingly, Legos. Kojima would construct environments using these Lego sets, using minifigures to take the place of characters in the game world, which then allowed him to visualize how certain camera angles would look within the three-dimensional space, because he was actually creating parts of the game world in real-world 3D. Now, I think this is a really interesting approach, because it shows Kojima's ingenuity in circumventing the limitations of the game engines and development tools of the time. Of course, eventually, all of those scenes did need to be created digitally in those tools that we talked about that were cumbersome and just not very easy to use. But because Kojima was able to visualize the camera angles and environments prior to that digital translation, it made the final in-game result much higher quality than it may have been otherwise. While the overall structure of the game world and the way the game was presented would certainly serve to heighten the realism of the experience, Kojima also wanted the game world itself and the interactions the player could take within that world to feel real. To accomplish that, the team spent time working with actual law enforcement agencies to better understand how real-world weaponry, explosives, and related equipment functioned, the thought being that if they understood the real-world equivalents, the development team would be able to better translate that realism into the game world. The development team even spent time going to shooting ranges to make sure that they could capture the feel of firing various weaponry in the game. That desire for realism extended beyond weaponry and even impacted the rest of the game world, as there were stories about how the team went so far as to design a bunch of in-game objects as standalone assets. Meaning, rather than design a single item like a desk and simply copying that same object wherever a desk might be needed, 
the team designed each object individually so that each desk would be distinct in its own way. Now, that's not to say that there was no object reuse across the game, but there was significant effort taken to make the world feel real, and doing so required a significant amount of detail and individuality to be added to many of the objects in the game. That attention to detail, by the way, extended to the character designs for the game as well, which were conceptualized by Kojima, but actually composed by a man named Yoji Shinkawa, who would end up working on pretty much every Hideo Kojima title from Police Knots on, and who is currently the lead artist and character designer for Kojima's production studio. In order to create the designs for each character, Shinkawa began by creating a series of detailed drawings, as well as clay models, and those models were then used by 3D artists to create digital models to use in the game. While there's not a ton of detail on the individual characters and their inspiration, I did see one tidbit that noted that Solid Snake, the game's main protagonist, had a physique based on martial arts actor Jean-Claude Van Damme, and a face based on Hollywood star Christopher Walken. I don't know that I personally see those similarities, but I do find it interesting to learn about what the inspiration was behind such an iconic character design. Turning our attention to music, Kojima originally envisioned a dynamic soundtrack where the instruments, tempo, and overall motifs would change based on the action happening on the screen, similar to what you might see in a standard movie soundtrack. This kind of approach to music was innovative for a home console, but it wasn't necessarily a brand new concept in the game industry. And actually, we've talked about this kind of thing before, primarily as it relates to LucasArts adventure titles and their iMuse system, which effectively allowed a tailored personal soundtrack to be created as a game was being played. Kojima wanted the same kind of thing for Metal Gear Solid, but unfortunately, the in-house music team at Konami couldn't implement that functionality in time for the game's release. Instead, the game would use a series of pre-recorded looping tracks that would play whenever certain actions occurred in the game. The soundtrack still changed based on the player's actions, but it wasn't really dynamically composed. It was more of a situation where individual pre-recorded tracks would be chosen, which meant that the music couldn't 100% be tailored for the experience of the player. Anyway... Eventually, the game would reach a point where it could be presented to the public, with the first gameplay video released for the 1996 Tokyo Game Show, followed by an updated video developed for the 1997 Electronics Entertainment Expo, or E3. Going into those shows, Kojima was hopeful, but didn't have particularly high expectations for a strong reception. What ended up happening, though, was exactly the opposite— as the entire gaming world took notice of Kojima's upcoming stealth action title. As time went on, hype continued to build, and the release of an actual playable demo in 1998 enticed gamers even further. In fact, the demo was surprisingly a big deal. The demo was a big deal, as over 12 million copies of the demo alone were distributed to gamers throughout 1998. That's simply an astronomical number. To say gamers were excited for the title would be an understatement. Finally, though, after years of development, Metal Gear Solid would release in Japan in September of 1998, with the localized North American version following a month later in October. Upon its release, nearly 
everyone would fall in love with the title, and critics and players alike would praise the game's graphics, sound, gameplay, story, cinematography, and pretty much every other aspect of the game, with some reviewers even going so far as to calling Metal Gear Solid the best game ever made. Not one of the best. The best. It would go on to top numerous sales and rental charts, and would over the course of its lifetime sell over 7 million copies. It would also make its way to a number of best games of all time lists across the entire industry. Now that's not to say that there weren't any criticisms of the game, as there were some critics that felt that the game felt less like a game and more like an interactive movie or work of art. Contributing to that was the fact that the overall runtime of the title was relatively short. Overall though, Metal Gear Solid was an exceedingly well-respected title, and any critics that did complain were relatively few in comparison to the masses who absolutely loved the game. A number of different versions of the game would be released over the years that followed, including some that came bundled with additional training missions, new costumes, and even some difficulty modes, with perhaps most notably the version for the GameCube, which was called Twin Snakes, or The Twin Snakes, and that was effectively a remake of Metal Gear Solid with updated graphics and gameplay taken from Metal Gear Solid 2. Speaking of Metal Gear Solid 2, that would be the first of several sequels and spin-offs that spawned from the original game, with mainline entries going all the way through Metal Gear Solid 5, and pretty much all being highly acclaimed by both the critical and gaming communities. Beyond the games, though, Metal Gear Solid would also be turned into a Japanese radio drama, a series of novels, and a comic book series. Its legacy, however, is more defined by how it changed the industry as opposed to releases in media within the context of the Metal Gear universe. As one of the first truly cinematic, stealth-driven games, Metal Gear Solid would inspire countless other titles over the years, and it would serve as yet another springboard for Hideo Kojima's unique blend of film-like interactive storytelling. Think about how many games, and this is just an example, think about how many games that allow you to sneak up behind an enemy and perform a special attack to defeat them without alerting others. You have Assassin's Creed, Shadow of Mordor, Splinter Cell, even Hogwarts Legacy from earlier this year had that kind of mechanic. Metal Gear Solid did it first. That is just one example of how Metal Gear Solid helped to define a mechanic that would become pervasive across all sorts of games. It also would birth the alert soundbite that a ridiculous number of YouTube creators think they have to use in order to make their videos successful. The fact is, Metal Gear Solid uses it better than any of them. Though I do appreciate that that particular sound has made its way into pop culture, even if some of the people who use it probably don't even know where it originated. Despite that, it's hard to imagine a world without Metal Gear Solid. As a pivotal release in the industry, it essentially defined a genre and presented the art of the possible on the Sony PlayStation. It may not have all the creature comforts and enhancements of its sequels, but that in no way diminishes the accomplishment that is the original Metal Gear Solid. It is one of the most influential games in gaming history, and as such, is a title that will undoubtedly be remembered and respected for all time.
we are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play the game today versus when it was released just about 25 years ago. So, like we talked about, Metal Gear Solid is a third-person, sort of angled, tops-down perspective game, taking place in a fully realized three-dimensional environment. The game world, the characters, and all of the objects in the game are all three-dimensional models. But the game's mostly tops-down perspective is defined in such a way that the controls are simplified, effectively making the majority of the game play more like a two-dimensional game, or more precisely, a two-dimensional game with depth. Despite the perspective, there is definitely the feeling that you exist in a three-dimensional space. It's just that you don't have to worry about really moving in three dimensions, which served to simplify controls for the original directional pad-only PlayStation controller. And like we talked about earlier, you do have the option of looking around the game world at any point from a stationary first-person perspective, which can prove useful when you're trying to determine where an enemy who's outside of your radar range might be hiding or moving. First-person view is also used automatically when you're in certain situations where it would be just impossible to see your body from a third-person perspective, like when you're crawling through a ventilation system, just as an example. So, technically, the game can render first-person movement, even though it doesn't choose to do so, which I did find interesting. Basically, that first-person view is a very situational kind of thing. It's useful at times, but otherwise more of a novelty. Beyond the first-person view you also have the ability to flatten yourself up against a wall, which serves to change the camera perspective into something more similar to an over-the-shoulder viewpoint. Though similar to the first-person view, the number of actions you can do from this position are pretty limited. These alternate perspectives feel like they're meant to encourage and support observation, more so than navigation or combat. And as you navigate the game world, you will quickly discover that the whole game is effectively a set of interconnected areas that make up the entirety of the complex that you'll be traversing. There are no levels, per se, though each area or screen is a self-contained experience. Meaning, if you navigate to the exit of an area, enemies won't follow you, which is actually a good thing given some of the situations you may find yourself in. But now here is the interesting thing about how the game is designed. Like we've talked about, Metal Gear Solid is a stealth action game, and you can pretty much approach any situation from either a more cautious or stealthy perspective, or a more action-oriented standpoint, which honestly, just from my perspective, is not a great option, but it is there regardless. What the game wants you to do, though, is avoid detection, and each screen of the game is designed almost like a puzzle to be solved. Each area has a number of enemies and pathways to navigate, and most enemies move along a defined path, which means in order to avoid detection, you have to observe enemy movement and time your own movements to counter the enemy's navigation. When it works, you feel like an amazing super soldier spy. You do also have a radar minimap to help you with navigating around enemies, though that radar readout has a pretty limited range. Still, it is useful for monitoring enemy movement, and you can see where an enemy might be looking by observing the view cone that displays on your radar. Careful observation of which direction enemies are facing is essential if you want to sneak around, or perhaps if you want to execute a stealthy kill, which in this game involves coming up from behind an enemy and choking them until you break their neck. On occasion, you may also face a situation where you have to get by a guard or need the guard to move out of position in order to proceed which, luckily, you can do by knocking on a nearby wall. In Metal Gear Solid, enemies can hear you, so if they hear that knock, they'll go into a sort of semi-alert state where they can scan the nearby environment for any threats. 
That distraction can give you the opportunity to slip by undetected and is definitely something that comes in handy. Or if you're like me, despite your best efforts, you will be discovered. And if that happens, pretty much every enemy in the immediate area tries to swarm you in what feels like a constant, never-ending set of spawning waves. And actually, I don't think it just feels that way. I think they really are a never-ending set of spawning waves. And when you're discovered, just so everybody knows, your radar becomes jammed, which means you can no longer use your minimap to determine where enemies are coming from. Your only option in this instance is to either leave the area via an exit, which is why it's really good that each screen is a self-contained experience, or you can find a place to hide, like under a bed or a desk, and hope that no enemy finds you before they reset to their unalert state which happens as a sort of countdown once you become hidden. So once you become hidden, the mini-map or the radar readout kind of shows a countdown from to show when an enemy or when the set of enemies will become unalert. And once they become unalerted, your radar will reset and you go back into what is effectively sneaking mode. Though if someone does find you before that countdown is done, the whole process resets itself and more enemies spawn and start swarming you until you can find another hiding place. If you do find yourself in a firefight because you're discovered or you're just not that great at stealth like me, the good news is that you have access to a variety of guns, grenades, and gadgets to help you survive. Gunplay in this game, though, is pretty limited. You can effectively aim in a certain direction and fire. There's not really a way to target a specific enemy with any degree of finite accuracy. You basically point in the direction of an enemy and you shoot. The game does seem to have a form of aim assist, though, and that does help compensate for the lack of a more accurate targeting mechanic. And it's a really good thing that aim assist exists, because sometimes actually hitting an enemy you're shooting at, unless at very close range, can be just a little bit tricky. You also have the option of engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat with any of the enemies that might be swarming you, but that's almost like a last resort kind of option, because your fists can only knock an enemy out temporarily. You can't really kill enemies without using a weapon. Though, as part of that more close-quarters combat kind of system, you do also have access to a throw move that can both disrupt an enemy's attack, as well as create a little bit of space for you to maneuver away. If you're lucky, you'll be able to remain in stealth mode wherever possible, though there are certain sections where stealth is not an option, which happens most notably during the various boss fights you'll encounter throughout the game. Most of those boss fights are designed really well. But there is one in particular that was incredibly innovative in its mechanics, and I'm talking, of course, for anybody who may have played the game, about the Psycho Mantis fight. For anyone who hasn't played the game, though, let me explain this one. Psycho Mantis is one of the bosses in the game, and he has the ability to read your thoughts, which in this case means the inputs you use on your controller. This means that hitting him normally is nearly impossible. The game is designed to use an unfair level of artificial intelligence for this fight, which basically means literally reading your inputs from the controller. But it turns out there's a trick. Actually, there's two tricks, and we'll get to that in a moment. But Psychomanus' abilities only extend to the first controller port. So if you swap your controller to the second port, he can no longer read your mind, and you can actually attack him, as he laments about the fact that he can no longer anticipate your moves. Seriously. What a genius mechanic to include in a game. And oh, by the way, let's say for some reason you can't swap controller ports easily. The game does have a second way of allowing you to get past the fight by shooting a couple of statues in the corner of the room. Even better, the game will detect when you're having some difficulty and will send you a message to nudge you along in the right direction, which starts pretty subtle, but eventually pretty much gives you 
the solution to whatever the puzzle is or whatever the encounter is that you're having difficulty with. And by the way, those messages, it's not just a pop-up hint system kind of thing. It is truly integrated into the overall game world. You'll receive messages from different characters via your codec, which is sort of like a video walkie-talkie kind of device. Normally, the codec is used to advance the story or to interact with various individuals helping to oversee your mission. But it also serves as a pseudo-hint system, which I thought was an excellent way of building hints organically into the game world without breaking the immersion of the experience. And let me tell you, beyond the gameplay, the cinematic style across the entire experience, and we're going to talk more about that in a little bit, inclusive of all of the camera angles, cutscenes, the story, the voice acting, pretty much everything in the game really does make you feel immersed. Before we go on to talk about the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box, or in this case, jewel case, says. Because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I really enjoy learning how different companies marketed their titles. And in the past, not necessarily around 1998 times so much, but before that, we didn't really have much to base our buying decisions on in stores, so the box was pretty much what you were going to get. 1998 is around the time where we started to get more information or had more readily available information. So most of the time when we're in the store at that around that point, if it was a fairly popular or we expected or the game companies expected the titles to be popular or sell well, we probably already knew about it. But regardless, I still want to look at the back of the box for Metal Gear Solid because what the heck, I just enjoy it. So for Metal Gear Solid, the back of the box says... You are Snake, a government agent on a mission to regain control of a secret nuclear weapons base from terrorist hands. And there's a couple of confidential files here. Lightly armed and facing an army of foes, Snake must avoid firefights in order to survive. If Snake can locate them, he can utilize advanced hardware, ranging from silenced pistols to ground-to-air missiles. Enemies react to sight and sound, so stay quiet and stay in the shadows. State-of-the-art graphics, textures, transparencies, models, and explosions. Taught, gripping story with multiple endings. A truly cinematic experience. And then there are a bunch of images on the back of the box, including, most notably, Meryl, who is one of the characters in the game, her codec number. So the way the codec works, and I'll deviate from the back of the box a little bit just because this is on the back of the box, the way the codec works is it all operates on frequencies or frequencies that you can actually put into the game. Sometimes the game gives you those frequencies directly and then you have a quick menu that you can pick who you want to talk to. At a certain point in the game, you will be told, hey, you got to contact Meryl and her codec number is on the back of your CD case. And then you have to look at your CD case, you get the codec number and you go off and you can contact her. I thought it was really cool that they integrated that into the game. And I know it probably wasn't a form of copy protection, so to speak, but it kind of felt like the old school copy protection that would be used in games from the past. For, for anybody who may not know, before there were all of these different copy protection mechanisms where we had digital games where you have to be signed in in order to actually play them, the way that most game companies would do any form of copy protection is they would have some sort of question or some sort of code that could only be deciphered if you used your instruction manual or any of the materials that came with the game. So with that in mind, it was attempt or it was an attempt to stop piracy, 
because the thought was if you got your software simply copied from somebody else, you wouldn't necessarily have the materials that came with the game. So this felt kind of like old school copy protection. I, I'm sure it wasn't meant to be. It was probably just meant to be a cool thing that tried to integrate a real world object with the in-game kind of situation, but it still felt that way nonetheless. Regardless of that fact, the back of the box for Metal Gear Solid looks great. It really is intriguing. They don't give too much away. They just basically say, hey, this is a cinematic experience. You're going to be dealing with a ton of different situations, and it really sets the stage for your adventure to come. I liked it. I would have definitely bought the game had I seen that, and by the way, I did. So I did buy the box, or I did buy the game, rather. It was very effective at its time, or in its time, to at least wrote me and around 7 million other people into buying the game. We're now going to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. For the time, Metal Gear Solid's graphics were incredible and were likely some of the best graphics available on the PlayStation. Today, well, it's a little complicated. The PlayStation was a great console, but one thing it didn't have was the concept of texture filtering which is a process where textures are smoothed out to eliminate the pixely kind of visuals that were prevalent around this time in early three-dimensional titles. The first time texture filtering would actually be used in a home console is the Nintendo 64, and anyone who has ever played a Nintendo 64 title knows exactly what this is. Look at pretty much any N64 game, and you're not going to see a single square pixel in sight. What you will see, though, is a sort of smeared texture on pretty much every object, which if we're talking about primary colors like most of Mario 64's world, can still look pretty great. Anything more detailed, though, and you get a situation that many people have described as looking like Vaseline was smeared across your television. The PlayStation, though, didn't have texture filtering, so it avoided the smeared, blurry kinds of color look that many N64 titles had. But in its place, it had graphics that can best be described as pixelated, or in the case of Metal Gear Solid's characters, just lacking in detail. Now let me be clear. In 1998, Metal Gear Solid looked amazing and realistic. But its graphics are decidedly a bit lacking when looked at from a more modern perspective. Now that doesn't in any way detract from the experience, but it does warrant a mention. So the visuals, just a bit lacking, but really, they're simply a function of the time the game was created and the technological constraints around that time. The other aspect of the visual presentation that we need to talk about is the cinematography of the title. And the fact that we have a game where we're talking about cinematography and not just cameras or viewpoints should give you a clue that this title is not your traditional action game. In short, Kojima used numerous film and framing techniques to create a visual environment where, in many situations, you felt like you were starring in an awesome spy action movie. Kojima's cinematic flair really shone throughout the game, and his efforts absolutely elevated the title above its contemporaries. This was a true cinematic experience. Moving on to the sound and music, the music in this game was absolutely perfect and presented the perfect blend of subtle tension and action-driven beats to create an auditory environment that feels like a true cinematic adventure. The music is so good, but it never overpowers the rest of the game's elements. It just blends perfectly with the action, or in some cases lack of action, on the screen, depending on how much stealth versus combat your particular playthrough is leaning towards. In all instances, 
The music sounds amazing, as do the sound effects, with every weapon, gadget, and environmental interaction having a perfectly matched set of sounds that pulls you into an even more immersive experience. Beyond the music and sound effects, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the voice acting, which is, for the most part, really good. That said, though, I did feel like some of the performances were just a little bit over the top, leaning almost towards caricature as opposed to nuance. But honestly, that was all part of the game's charm. Special mention, by the way, must go to David Hayter as Snake, a performance that perfectly captures the gruff super soldier vibe that Snake's design was going for. I would even go so far as to say one of the reasons Snake is as loved as he is is because of Hayter's performance. It has become an iconic part of gaming history, and it is so, so good. Moving on to the narrative and story. You play as Solid Snake, a legendary, albeit retired, super soldier and spy who is the kind of guy you call when you need to fix an impossible situation. Metal Gear Solid is itself a continuation of sorts from the original MSX2 Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2. So by the time we join Snake here, he's already experienced those adventures, even though many of us in America never did. Though the game does include a text-based write-up on Snake's prior adventures, which I thought was a nice touch. In Metal Gear Solid, Snake has been tasked with coming out of retirement and infiltrating a nuclear weapons facility that has been taken over by a genetically enhanced special forces team named Foxhound. Foxhound is threatening to set off a series of nuclear weapons unless their demands are met, which includes both a large sum of money as well as the return of the remains of Big Boss, the prior leader of the unit, and someone who has a very significant tie into the underlying lore behind the entire Metal Gear series. Snake's mission is to neutralize Foxhound, prevent the launch of the nuclear weaponry, and hopefully live to fight another day. I'm just going to put it out there right away. This story was epic in scope and delivery, and it represents perhaps the most cinematic narrative in gaming, at least as far as 1998 gaming is concerned. It set a new standard for story delivery and cinematic technique in video games, and as such, has influenced a ton of titles that followed it. It is almost universally a perfect experience. That said, I do have to call Kojima out on his tendency to do large story dumps as bad guy monologues near the end of a game. We saw this in Snatcher, where the final act was pretty much an hour-long cutscene. And we see it again here, where the penultimate section of the game features a long narrative dump that, while excellent, still warrants a mention as a game segment that slows momentum just a bit. It is not nearly as egregious as Snatcher's third act. But it is something to consider. There is a long bad guy monologue that, like I said, it's good, but it's definitely it's kind of like, OK, Kojima, yes, here's your bad guy monologue that was in literally every action movie from the time or even before that. So I get it. It's a cinematic thing. Like I said, it's good. Just I, I have to keep mentioning it because it's just a staple of Kojima's philosophy, so to speak. Otherwise, though, I loved the story. I absolutely loved it. Moving on to the playability and controls, we already kind of talked about the core mechanics of the game and its controls, so I'm not going to rehash all of that here. What I will say, however, is that the game controls really well overall, and even though the game was created over 20 years ago, playing it today still feels amazing. That said, I do have a couple critiques that I'd like to discuss. We mentioned before that you can sneak up behind an enemy to choke them out, effectively executing a stealth kill. The actual mechanic of doing that, though, was a little bit hit or miss for me. 
It took me a little bit of time to get used to sneaking up behind the enemy, stopping, and then choking him out, as oftentimes I would just move a bit too close to the enemy or have a little bit too much motion, and then that would result in a throw as opposed to a choke. That doesn't sound super bad just hearing it, except for the fact that a throw will almost assuredly drop you out of stealth, which thrusts you into an action segment. I honestly don't remember having this difficulty back when I played it at release, so it's entirely possible this is simply a me issue as opposed to a broader issue with the game. Regardless, I wanted to mention it just in case anybody else has had a similar kind of experience. I also want to mention that stealth in the game feels great, but it can sometimes be difficult to see where an enemy is looking or to follow their movement patterns. This is due to a couple of factors. For one, your radar minimap is pretty small. And secondly, the amount of visibility you have on the screen, given the mostly tops-down angled perspective of the game, makes it tricky to maintain a visual on your enemies. There is the first-person mode, which can help, but it's not really a fully baked solution. Action segments, unlike stealth sections, at least for me, don't feel nearly as good. Don't get me wrong, they're designed competently, and they are fun to play. But the fact that enemies will seemingly keep spawning until you return yourself to a hidden position does take a bit of immersion out of the experience. If only the enemies in the immediate area would be notified to your presence, I think it would have been a lot better. As it stands though, it's a bit of an immersion killer when you keep getting swarmed by two to three guards at a time. I also should mention that most of the game is gated by the need to find higher and higher levels of security clearance ID cards, which isn't itself necessarily a bad thing, but it is slightly dated design in comparison to more modern stealth action titles. It's not really Metroidvania, so to speak, where you have to have different items and then go back to areas to unlock other aspects or pieces of the game world. It's kind of like that a little bit, but it's all based on these security ID cards, which just feels like it's almost like an arbitrary gating kind of thing. Nothing that really detracted from the game, just something to mention that it was a little bit of dated design. Despite those minor critiques, though, there is far more good here that bears mentioning. Though I will say, I think the boss fights are an absolute highlight, and the torture sequence around halfway through the game, complete with high stakes should you fail to persevere, is probably my favorite sequence in the game. It is so cinematic. It's basically ripped right out of Rambo 2, and I found it awesome. If anybody hasn't seen Rambo 2, you should go watch it. I mean, it's a silly 80s action movie, but the torture scene in Metal Gear Solid is pretty much that scene. Almost exactly. Not exactly, but pretty darn close. I also really enjoyed the various gadgetry used throughout the game, as well as how that gadgetry interacts with the environment. My favorite ones of these was the cigarette smoke that you can use to detect otherwise invisible laser beams. That was a seriously awesome moment in a game full of them. Bottom line, the game, for the most part, controls great, and it is as playable today as it ever has been. Overall feel, what do we think? Well, overall, the game was an amazing, cinematic, engaging, immersive, and downright fun experience. Any critiques that I've levied against the game have been minor at best. This is an example of a well-designed, timeless experience. It is, quite simply, a masterpiece. So overall, what do we think the verdict is? Does Metal Gear Solid hit our pantheon of classic gaming? Well, I literally just called the game a masterpiece a second ago, so you can probably guess that Metal Gear Solid is undoubtedly our newest addition to the pantheon of classic gaming. 
It is crazy to me that Hideo Kojima was able to adapt the relatively simple framework of the original Metal Gear games into something so much more expansive and so much more cinematic, yet still something that you can very clearly see evolved from its predecessors. This is a masterclass in game design and is an experience that everyone, literally everyone, should experience at some point in their gaming careers. I can't speak highly enough about it. Metal Gear Solid is an all-time classic, and it deserves its spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. That was our episode on Metal Gear Solid. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get engaged with the podcast community and myself. So definitely go out to Discord if you want to get even more engaged with this community. We also have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today, that is the spot to get it. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be what is effectively our one-year anniversary show, or at least it'll be episode 50. And I figure rather than celebrating every 52 episodes, which is kind of weird, it might be nice and tidy to celebrate on the 50s. So we're going to basically say every 50 episodes represents one year of the show. So for that episode, for our 50th episode, we're going to dive back into our own history and we'll talk about and rank definitively, sort of, the top 10 games that have made it into the pantheon of classic gaming so far. I'm sure you all have your own lists, so feel free to go through your own ranking in advance of next week's episode and we can compare notes and arm wrestle to figure out whose opinion is right. As always, feel free to write in if you'd like to share your thoughts. At the same time, I recognize that you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, and if you would feel so inclined, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star accounts or trying to harvest a ton of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what this is really all about is trying to get the feedback necessary to provide and make sure that this is the best possible podcast I can make. I want to make sure that we're delivering the content that everybody wants to listen to and just continue to grow the community. We get new listeners every single day, which is awesome. I want to continue that momentum, and the only way to do that is to make sure that I'm delivering the content that everybody wants to hear. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode, where we will rank the top 10 entries in our pantheon of classic gaming. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.
Okay. 